Today is Resurrection Sunday, uh, and of course we are celebrating uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we are literally joining with uh, billions of people around the world to celebrate the resurrection. And, uh, you know, today, if, if you like, it's not a sad occasion. It is a very happy occasion. And just before I get into the message, I wonder if anybody hasn't got an outline in their hand, uh, then raise up your hand and somebody's going to get you one. We have uh, basically the message in print form that you can take away and reread it again just for your spiritual edification. I'm just going to pray right now and I'm going to trust God to speak to us this morning and to give us greater insight. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again for this great day today, Lord, as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Lord, whom you've sent into the world to die for us on the cross. We're very grateful this morning for, uh, Lord, uh, that our sins are forgiven, that Jesus died on our behalf. And I want to thank you, Father, for speaking to us this morning, giving us insight and revelation and telling us what we can do to lay a hold of that which Jesus has purchased on the cross. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I had a quick look at the, um, at the current status of the world population. And, you know, statisticians tell us that there is now 2 point, should, let me start again, that there is now 7.1 billion people on the face of the earth. And just a bit over a third of those are considered to be Christians worldwide. So we are literally joining with about 2.3 billion people around the world celebrating the Resurrection Sunday today. Of course, uh, you know, as the world goes around, you know, some of these people are still sleeping. We're celebrating early. They're celebrating later on. But the main thing is that everybody is celebrating. Uh, the apostles Peter and John, uh, and I want to read that scripture very shortly where this video footage has, if you like, uh, got its... its uh, its inspiration from these guys um, had uh, run into the uh, you know, down to the tomb where just three days earlier Jesus's body was laid, um, covered with what they call grave cloths. So if you like some sheets that they had used to cover the body um, and laid him in there. And when these guys arrived, not only did they find the stone that had covered the tomb rolled away. But uh, Peter went inside and uh, discovered that the body had gone and all that was left was the grave cloths. And um, of course, uh, none of that should have been a surprise to them because Jesus had told them that he was going to die. He had told them which death he was going to die and he had told them that three days later he was going to rise again. And I want to look at some of those scriptures today so that all of us are completely informed what happened. And we're not talking legend today, friends. We are talking absolutely documented events, and it demands a response from us. And uh, so if you just give me your attention for a few minutes, and I want to just read from John chapter 20, verse 1. Uh, scripture's in your outline, and it's also on the, on, on the screen behind me. In John 20, verse 1, it says, Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So she ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, this is speaking about John. This is the Gospel of John. John wrote about himself, and he referred to himself as the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Okay, so this is very interesting. So she says that, uh, whom Jesus loved, she said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. And Jesus and the other disciple started out, for the tomb, and they were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter. 
So John was saying, I was faster than Peter. All right? He says, he outrained the other uh, Peter and reached the tomb first. All right, good on you, John. You got there first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Verse 6, then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. Okay, Pete, you got there last. He, and he went inside, and he also noticed the linen, linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that had been covering Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart with the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, they hadn't understood the scriptures which said that Jesus must rise from the dead, and they went home. It's interesting how we are basically told here from John's perspective what happened. And, uh, and John also pointed out that until then, until that moment, they hadn't understood the scriptures. They hadn't understood what had happened, and it's amazing how we can, we can hear the Bible uh, or read the Bible or read portions of the Bible and not understand it. Let me tell you, uh, friends, that I, we have prayed here this morning before the service started, and we have prayed that everybody understands the Scriptures because it demands a response from us. And so this deal here that went on is really the best good news of all times. There's no greater announcement that had ever been made throughout history than this one here, that Jesus is alive. The cross was empty and the tomb, should I say, the cross was bare and the tomb was empty. And I want to read the same passage here from, from uh, should I say, the same story from Luke's perspective. Uh, Luke, of course, was a physician at the time and he recorded uh, sort of different aspects of it. In Luke chapter 24, verse 1, very, very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared, kind of a spices for embalming the body, if you like. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, and they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. And they said, as they stood there, puzzled, two women, or rather two men appeared to them uh, clothed, in dazzling robes. So uh, that indicates that these two guys were angels appearing to these women. And the women were uh, suddenly, um, let me start again, the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. And then the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He has risen from the dead. So he is now angels making the announcement to these women that Jesus is not among the dead. He was among the dead, but he's not there anymore. He's now found among the lives. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, that he would rise again on the third day. And of course, uh, uh, we know what happened, uh, particularly if we have read uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and there's also indications of that later on in, in the New Testament, that the religious leaders of the day had falsely accused Jesus. Um, and uh, the Roman governor, by the name of Pontius Pilate, actually ordered his ex execution uh, through death on the cross. The Romans at that time were a very cruel people uh, and had devised one of the most cruel deaths that somebody could die, and that is to nail them to a cross uh, and to leave them there until they were basically, ha having suffered plenty, that they would die by suffocation. Um, and uh, once again, it's recognizing that uh, Jesus' death wasn't forced on him. 
It didn't take him by surprise. It was all part of God's plan. And let me just describe what exactly all of that means. Here in John chapter 10, verse 15, uh, Jesus said, So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. So basically Jesus indicating there that he's the good shepherd and that we are the sheep. All right, he says, I sacrifice my life for the sheep. The Father loves me because I sacrifice my life so that I may take it back again. So Jesus laid down his life and then he took it back again. Um, verse 18, he says, No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down and when I want, uh, when I want to, and I also take it up again. This is what my Father has commanded. And of course, some of these guys that uh, tried Jesus and put him on trial and accused him and, and told him that they had the power uh, over, over, over him to put him to death, death. And of course, Jesus says, you've only got the power that is given to you. That's all you have. And really, ultimately, Jesus himself was in charge in that situation and could have, at a moment's notice, called on God the Father to send uh, multiplied thousands of angels to get him out of that situation. But that would have been contrary to the plan that the Bible says was worked out in heaven uh, before the foundation of the earth were even laid. Where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit got together and worked out a plan that if humanity was ever going to go off the rails and be disconnected from God, that Jesus was going to come into the, into the earth and die a cruel and a painful death. Uh, the one who had never sinned to pay for our sins so that we could be saved from sin's penalty, which uh, spells uh, four letters, that's H-E-L-L. -L. Ultimately, uh, sin takes people to hell, um, and God doesn't want that to happen. So he sent Jesus to die on the cross, so that we, through his sacrificial death, could be a would be able to go back to God and uh, be brought into right standing with God. And so Jesus uh, wasn't in any way surprised. He knew what was coming, um, and uh, he died on the cross. He was buried. The Bible tells us that he literally went into hell um, and suffered the attacks of demon spirits in hell for some time until he rose victoriously, defeated uh, Satan and all of his demons, took the keys of, of death and of, of, and of hell uh, from the devil and rose again on the third day. And here in Matthew chapter 12, and really it's interesting, but when we talk about Resurrection Sunday, there's different angles that we could look at this thing. And very shortly, I want to run through the sequence of, of, of things that took place. If you like, uh, you know, sometimes it's referred to as the passion of the Christ, that everything that he went through from beginning to end, from the time that, that, uh, that he was um, sharing the Last Supper with his disciples, to the time that he rose again and everything that happened in the middle there. I want to run through that and really we are limited time, so I'm just going to bounce along some of the headlines so that we can understand uh, what it means for Jesus to have died on the cross because as, as I said, it demands a response from us. So Matthew 12, verse 38, one day it says, Some teachers of religious law and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to show us a miraculous sign to prove your authority. Um, but Jesus replied, Only an evil and adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign, but the only sign that will be given them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, for those people that have read 
the Old Testament, specifically the book of Jonah, um, it basically tells us there that Jonah was a man that was called by God. And to make a long story short, God told him to go to a city of Nineveh and to preach because the people there were very wicked. And God says, I don't want to judge that city. I want them to have the opportunity to repent and to be brought into right standing with God. So Jonah, why don't you go there, preach my word so that people can hear, have faith and repent and that, that you know, I don't have to declare judgment on that city. Jonah rebelled against that. And uh, the Bible tells us that he jumped on a boat and he wanted to get away from that place as far as possible. Ended up getting thrown overboard. And the Bible says that a great fish swallowed uh, Jonah um, and, uh, and uh, took him around a bit of a ticket tour around, I guess, what might have been the Mediterranean Sea and then sped him out on the beach uh, three days later. Um, you might say, well, that's a bit of a far-fetched story. Uh, that is not possible. Do you know what? Uh, that there is a story a happening where some whalers uh, were out whaling about 80, 100 years ago when they still used to you know, catch these big whales and uh, not happening much, but it's happening some today. And one of these guys fell overboard and then sometime later they caught a whale uh, and then as they did, they dragged it into the whaling station and opened the thing up and they found this guy inside uh, the whale and uh, they tell us that uh, he was lying on his side in, in, in the stomach of the whale and uh, one side of him was all bleached by the stomach acid of the whale and I can't tell you whether the man was alive or dead, but it is possible. Uh, and... Uh, and basically, Jesus saying to these guys, look, he says, you asking for a sign, but the only sign that I'm really prepared to give you is the sign of Jonah. And then he carries on by saying, he says, verse 40, for as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and for three nights. And as I said earlier on, uh, the disciples heard this, but it just didn't register. Um, and then later on, when they discovered that Jesus had been risen from the dead, suddenly they understood and they put all the pieces together that Jesus had talked about this deal. It came to no surprise to him as to what he had to go through. So he lived a sinless life, and towards the end of his life, he prophesied, and he said that he would die and come back three days later. And in John chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus answered and said, Now is the judgment of this world. This is now just a few days before Jesus was going to be captured, before he was going to be crucified on the cross. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And this he said, signifying by what death he will die. Now, the Bible tells us here that the ruler of this world, who is actually Satan, whom the Bible describes as the God of this world, uh, he was judged at the death of Jesus Christ. And he was stripped of his power and of his authority. And really, legally, the devil has no power over us anymore. Now, I still exercise this power with people because they don't know what Jesus has done on the cross. But legally, he has no more power over us. And right there, Jesus says, If I am lifted up from the earth, now, 
A casual reader of the word would just move on and say, lifted up, oh yeah. But lifted up was a term that they used for being crucified because they nailed these guys to a cross, to a, to a, a wooden cross that was lying on the ground. They nailed them to the cross lying ground and then they lifted them up. They used ropes and stood the cross up and dumped it into some, into some hole in the ground uh, and then strapped it down so that it wouldn't fall over. And Jesus says, if I am lifted up, that's exactly what he meant. So basically, he was signifying by what death he was going to die. Jesus knew he wasn't going to die by, by, by some accident. He knew he wasn't going to be die, uh, wasn't going to die by just being, you know, pushed over a cliff or something. He he, he exactly told uh, the people there as to how he was going to die. To be lifted up means to be crucified. And then he said, to him, "That's going to happen, and we know it happened." He says, "I will draw all men to myself." And really, this is one of the main messages of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for the sins of all human beings. Not just, he didn't just die for good people. In fact, he specifically said, I didn't come. He, he said, for the righteous. He says, I came for the sinners. Because the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he says, I'm now I'm drawing all people to myself. And so, friend, uh, on the strength of the scripture here, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as the Lord of your life and as your Savior, then you should feel a drawing right now to come to Jesus even this morning. Do not even leave through these doors until your relationship with God is fully established, until you know that your sins are forgiven and that ultimately you're going to make heaven. So the course of events unfolded as follows. And this is now, if you like, a study, a compilation of the study of different Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. To just skim through it so we can get a handle on everything that took place. Several days before the Passover. Now, the Passover festival uh, was a Jewish festival that happens once a year, around about this time of the year. Uh, you know, I called today Resurrection Sunday. Uh, I don't like calling it Easter because the word Easter has got some connotations to it that uh, that really, you know, Easter, Easter bunnies and Easter eggs and all of these other things. Uh, I like to call it Resurrection Sunday. Let's stick with the Bible rather than get into tradition and into all of these other things. But uh, several days before the Passover uh, festival, Jesus came to Jerusalem uh, in what is called the triumphant entry. Jesus had now traveled around for some three years an itinerant minister, if you like, an itinerant prophet who had preached the gospel, healed sick people, cast out demons, and generally helped people wherever he went. And now he's coming into Jerusalem. And the people knew he was coming, and, and they somehow thought that he was going to be crowned the king of the Jews and that he was going to liberate them from the Roman oppressors. Um, and uh, I guess that was natural thinking. And sometimes people think at a natural level uh, that really... Caesar was the oppressor at the time in the natural. But Jesus wasn't too worried about Caesar. Jesus was more concerned about the real oppressor called Satan who oppresses people everywhere, whether they live in a, in a democracy or whether they live under, under a dictatorship. The form of government has really not much to do with it. People are oppressed by the devil. And because uh, Jesus rode into Jerusalem and the people were lining the streets and shouting out and saying Hosanna, um, basically uh, celebrating and uh, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in in the, in the name of the Lord. This is the king of the Jews. And they thought that they were going to take Jesus 
And they've done that to some of the Old Testament kings. They just took this guy and put him on a throne and, and crowned him and said, you are now our king. And, and they were getting ready to do that uh, with Jesus. It was public opinion, if you like, of Jesus was running high. But have you know that public opinion can be rather fickle? Um, so number two, after spending some days teaching the word, Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples. He told them to go and prepare, set the place up, what's called the upper room, and they went there and they celebrated the Passover together. We now refer to it as the Last Supper. That was the last time before Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that Jesus was uh, celebrating the Passover feast together with them. It was also the place where he instituted the new covenant. And, you know, in a moment we're going to share communion together. And basically Jesus said, he broke the bread, he gave it to them, he says, take eat. He says, this is my body which is broken for you. And that piece of bread became the body of Jesus, if you like, symbolically, that in just hours from now was going to be uh, attacked, used and abused and ripped and ultimately hung to the cross. And then he gave him the cup that was all set up. That's typically the Passover meal that Jewish people celebrated this time of the year around the world every year. He gave them the cup and he says, take, the, he said, drink from it. This is my blood of the new covenant. If you take your Bible uh, and start in the beginning and go about two thirds into it, you're dealing with the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. And the last third is the New Testament or the New Covenant. And so that lets us know that uh, Jesus uh, instituted a new covenant where forgiveness of sins is available, not by keeping the law, the Ten Commandments, all of these other things, but simply by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. That's why we call it a faith religion. It is not a works religion, but it is a faith religion where we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. And... Uh, that was the Last Supper, and this is also where he spoke of his betrayal. He told his disciples, he says, one of you is going to betray me. And uh, sure enough, they left their place there, and this is now later on in the evening, they went out to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, and, uh, you know, at that stage, Judas had made his way out and uh, uh, collaborated with uh, the, the, the Jewish priests at the time that he was going to betray Jesus and was going to lead him uh, right to where Jesus was and and ended up agreeing with them. He's saying, look, the one that I'm going to kiss, he says, he's the one that you want to capture. Let the others go, but the one that I'm going to kiss. So here is Jesus and his, the other disciples went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Jesus spent some time praying, and the Bible says that he so agonized in prayer that he, he sweated drops of blood. Um, and medical science tells us that it is actually possible for somebody to be under such stress and under such pressure that they're not just uh, perspiring as people would normally, but there's actually a perspiring of blood uh, going on. And why was that happening? Because Jesus knew exactly what he was about to face. He had read the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, which tells exactly what was going to happen and what he had to walk through. And all of these other prophecies that we read about in the Old Testament, Jesus knew exactly who he was and knew exactly what he was about to face. When he came back, uh, to his disciples that in the meantime had fallen asleep. He says, get up. He says, Our time, my time has come. And at that moment, Jesus comes, uh, should I say, Judas comes in. He brings the soldiers uh, of the chief priests who had, if you like, their own, uh, their own uh, uh, force. And he had said to them, the one that I'm going to kiss, he's the one that uh, you need to capture. So Judas comes in, he walks over to Jesus and kisses him. Uh, 
and the kiss of betrayal. Um, and, uh, and of course, uh, from that moment, uh, the soldiers came in and captured Jesus and took him away. From there, they took him to uh, Anna's place. Now, Annas uh, was a man that was the father-in-law of the high priest at the time. And uh, there were some of the other guys, some of the elders, Jewish elders, that got together at that place and they began to examine him. Now, we need to understand, we need to understand the Old Testament picture. During the Passover festival, two weeks prior to that, every family had to choose a lamb for themselves. It was to be the sacrificial lamb that was to die and its blood was going to symbolically cover their sins. Uh, they had to take this lamb and from memory, I think it was two weeks prior before they slaughtered it. It could be three weeks, could be one week. And they had to carefully examine this lamb. And the lamb wasn't supposed to be lame in any way. It was not to have any defects. It was not to be blind. It was not to be deaf. It wasn't, there, was, there was to be nothing wrong with this lamb. And when they realized that, yes, this is a perfect lamb, because God told uh, the people in the book of Malachi, says, don't bring me your lamb your lame lambs and your blind ones and, you know, the one that you don't want anymore. He wanted a perfect sacrifice. And they went through that ritual year after year after year. And the Bible says that the sins of the people was covered through the death of that lamb or specifically through its blood. When Jesus came on the scene and John the Baptist was down at the River Jordan baptizing people and he saw Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the people. And this time, this lamb was going to be slaughtered, and the sins of the people were not going to just be covered as it was under the physical, the literal lamb. Year after year, the sins of the people only covered. But the blood of this lamb now, the lamb's name being Jesus Christ, was going to take away the sins of the people, wash them uh, so that we are absolutely pure and holy in God's sight. Jesus had to be examined like the little lamb had to be examined back in the Old Testament. So they brought him to the uh, high priest's father-in-law's place and they began to just jostle him and try to accuse him and, and try to find something that they could pin to him so that they could do away with him. And then number five, they took him to the high priest's place whose name was Caiaphas. And there they tried him and then in the end they ended up condemning him to death. Uh, at that point, they made up false charges. They paid some people to come and to accuse him of something that he said that he actually didn't say. And on the strength of those false charges, they condemned him to death. And interesting, the Bible tells us that that was also the place where out in the courtyard, some of the soldiers were out there. And uh, that was the place where Peter came along because Peter, while all the other disciples scattered, Peter was the one that followed and when Peter was confronted out in the courtyard, and Peter, the same Peter that he prior to said, Lord, I'm ready to die with you. And he did follow Jesus and from a distance tried to watch the proceedings to see how he might be able to help. And when Jesus, uh, when Peter was confronted out there and they said, you're from Galilee as well. You're one of those guys that followed Jesus. And Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about. I do not know the man. So three times, he denied Jesus and then he went out and he went away and he cried and he could not believe that just prior to that he said, I'm ready to die and when the pressure came on he caved in. Aren't you glad that when Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane he knew exactly that he was going to die and the pressure came on but he didn't back out. 
He went right through with this whole thing. If he had not died, then everybody would still be in their sins and heaven would only be a dream that would not be accessible for any human being. So from there, point number six, they moved Jesus to Pontius Pilate's place, who was the Roman governor at the time. The Jewish priests had already made up their mind. The elders of the people had said, he needs to die. He's a threat to us. He's a threat to our society. He doesn't fit into our picture. And he needs to die. And they brought him to Pontius Pilate's place because only Pontius Pilate had the authority to literally condemn somebody to death and to actually get it carried out. The Jews had some self-determination at that time. I mean, they had, as I said, some sort of uh, uh, military police force, if you like, uh, but uh, their powers were very, very limited. Only Pontius Pilate had the power to actually condemn somebody to death or to, if you like, rubber stamp their decision. And it was at that place that uh, Pilate examined Jesus again. So Jesus had been examined several times by different groupings, by different authorities, by different uh, governmental agencies, if you like, by different courts. Pilate could find no fault in him. Um, it's interesting. When... Uh, Pilate was seeing Jesus and as it were, check him out and to examine him. Pilate's wife had a dream. And, and she came out and she says, she said to her husband, have nothing to do with this man. This man is innocent, have nothing to do with him. And Pilate wanted to let him go. Um, but Pilate was a man pleaser. And Pilate was also a man that really liked his position. And when the Jews began to accuse him and said, you're no friend of Caesar if you let this criminal go. He thought, oh no, I'm going to get accused and I might lose my position here. Friend, let me say that in order to accept Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, it might threaten our position in society. It might threaten our position in, 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 in amongst our friends and our peers. And I don't mean that people will lose their job necessarily. You know, praise God, we live in a democracy. Um, you know, in some places, people will have to give up everything in order to accept Jesus. But it will threaten our position. And if we want to retain our, our position, then we can't have Jesus. And uh, so Pilate, in the end, when he examined Jesus and found out that he was a Galilean, and of course there was Herod, King Herod, who was responsible for the Galilean uh, area jurisdiction, if you like, so he sent him over and said, oh, let's just get rid of him, and just send him over to, to Herod. And so they took him over to Herod, and Herod again had his own police force, his own soldiers, and they took Jesus and they put uh, mock robes on him, bowed down before him and said, hail the king of the Jews, and then they slapped him, and then they used him and abused him, and, and uh, wove a crown of thorns and pushed it on his head, and they weren't just little spiky little things as we might have with gorse today, they were long spikes. Uh, when they wove this thing together and pushed it down on his head so the blood was pouring out uh, in all directions. And then uh, Herod, again, could find no fault in Jesus, but uh, to some extent probably delighted in uh, just using him and abusing him anyway and sending him back to Pilate again. Um, and uh, here in point number nine, Pilate examined him again, but still could find no fault in Jesus. So finally, to appease the crowds, he had him whipped before ordering his soldiers to nail him to the cross. It was traditional 
that at that particular Passover, at, at, at every Passover feast, that Pilate, as the Roman governor, is a gesture of goodwill, was going to release one of the prisoners, and a lot of them were political prisoners. Uh, and there was a man there by the name of Barabbas. So Pilate said, bring out Barabbas. I'm going to release him to them. Barabbas, uh, if you like, was a favorite of the crowds because he was a man that had led an insurrection against the Roman government. In many respects, even though he was a murderer and had committed terrible things, he thought, well, he's a freedom fighter. So, so uh, when um, Pilate brought him out and stood him before the people, the Jewish priests had infiltrated the crowds and said, no, 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 we don't want Barabbas. Give us Jesus and have him crucified. And, and the same crowd, just a few days earlier, were celebrating and saying, Hosanna, here comes the king of the Jews. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The same crowd was subtly incited against Jesus and were basically parroting and saying the same thing that their leaders were saying. And, uh, you know, their peers, if you like. And sometimes, I mean, I've found over the years that when you talk to people about Jesus, in amongst their peers, people like to retain their position amongst their peers and they will try to sort of uh, reject things. But you get people one-on-one. -on -one, and when there's no peers, they're breathing down their neck. Uh, people are more inclined to open up spiritually and to accept Jesus as Lord of their lives. So let me tell you, no matter where you're at today, whether your peers are with you or not, uh, if you feel threatened about your position in society, then you're liable to reject Jesus and that one decision will land you in a place called hell. A place that God never even created for people. God created hell not for people, but for Satan and for all demon spirits. And everybody that rejects Jesus will end up in the same place. Yet God has created a place called heaven. And everybody that receives Jesus as Lord of their lives will be able to go to heaven one day. So from there, they took Jesus to a place called Golgotha, uh, which in Greek and Latin is called the place of the skull. There was a, a rock outcrop just outside of the city of Jerusalem that looked like a skull because the way that the rock was formed and everything. And so they took Jesus up there. Um, and uh, by that stage, uh, they had now whipped him. Um, the Roman soldiers had absolutely uh, abused Jesus to the extent that he was barely recognizable as a human being. The Bible tells us in uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 52 and chapter 53, it tells us that his visage was so marred that he was not hardly recognizable anymore. So they had taken, uh, they had taken sticks and beat him that uh, the, the skin broke and opened up. And then they took whips made from strips of leather that they tied bits of metal and bits of bone into and tied him to what they called the whipping post. And they would whip him, and when the straps of leather would come around him and, and the claws of metal and bone would whip into, into his skin and into his flesh, and then they would pull on that whip and, and uh, strip off his skin and parts of his flesh and to absolutely decimate his body. Um, of course, uh, we're horrified by that. But uh, the good news is that it is by the stripes of Jesus that we can receive healing for our body. All of that really had to happen in order to redeem our lives, not just from a place called hell, but to redeem our lives from, from sickness and from disease and from disasters and calamities and even from poverty. That God wants no person poor. 
Jesus paid the complete price on the cross and leading up to it so that we can live good lives on this earth and have access to all the good things that God has prepared for us. So by now, Jesus was too weak. They made him carry his cross. He was too weak to carry his own, own cross. So they grabbed the guy out of the crowd, made him carry the cross of Jesus up to that hill. It was common that... Uh, that uh, criminals had to carry their own cross that they were going to be nailed to. Uh, it was all part of that punishment deal that they thought up. And when they reached the top of that place, they uh, grabbed Jesus and two other criminals, nailed all three of them to the cross, and lifted them up. Um, and because um, the Bible tells us that at that point, um, Jesus began to cry out and one of the things that he said, he says, My father, my father, why have you forsaken me? Which is incredible. Where Jesus had always known his father. He had he'd been in heaven all, ever throughout eternity. Uh, he came into the earth, became a human being. And now he's facing something that he never faced before. He's now forsaken by God. He's now, he's now disconnected from God the Father. And he's now feeling the, the, this disconnection. Uh, and he cries out, My Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? Um, and if we don't understand, we might even accuse God of being cruel. But folks, a scapegoat had to die. Somebody had to be found that was going to pay the price of the sins of mankind, and there was no other that had lived a sinless life except Jesus. And he had to taste death. He had to feel what it would feel like to be disconnected from God. It was all the judgment that was laid on Jesus. And from there, when he was to die, he was, his body was laid in the tomb, but his soul, his spirit went right into hell. And uh, Psalm 22 tells us the demon spirits attacked him in that place. And on earth, human beings had abused him, and now demon spirits are abusing him. It was all part of that price that had to be paid. So after Jesus died, the Bible says he gave up his spirit. And uh, somehow, it was uncommon for somebody to die this early uh, because typically these uh, crucifixion victims would live for some time. Um, and, uh, but Jesus, in the end, died of a broken heart and died of that, of that agony, of that separation from God. Then later on, when Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple, came and he went to Pilate and he wanted the body of Jesus uh, so that he could take it down, because according to Old Testament rules, there was not going to be anybody left on, the, uh, on any cross anywhere, uh, anywhere during the Sabbath day. And so in the evening before the actual Sabbath day started, Sabbath day being, if you like, uh, uh, you know, that, that festival day, they took the body of Jesus, uh, and Pilate had given permission, said, yes, you go and take the body and do with it what you like. Joseph of Arimathea and a man by the name of Nicodemus came and, uh, and went to the soldiers and said, look, we've got permission from Pilate to have the body of Jesus. Um, and um, it's interesting that uh, the same Nicodemus that came to Jesus by night because he didn't want his friends to see him visiting Jesus, John chapter 3, and he said to Jesus, he says, we know that you're a man sent from God because no man can do these miracles that you, you do unless you're from God. And... and uh, Jesus cut right through that and he says, Nicodemus, says, I tell you the truth. He says, very, verily, I say to you, he says, you must be born again, otherwise you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. 
And then a few breaths later on, he told him that you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. And the same, the same disciple, uh, the same secret disciple called Nicodemus, later on he came out. Um, and you know, sometimes there's secret disciples that are sort of Christians secretly. We call them undercover agents. Nobody knows, but you know, they've sort of given their heart to the Lord in the quietness of their bedroom, perhaps, and that's absolutely fantastic. But sooner or later, it's time to come out. And Nicodemus decided that this event of Jesus dying on the cross, he is going to come out. Um, and, uh, praise God. <laughs> and yeah, so the soldiers went over to Jesus because by now Jesus should still be alive. And to speed up the process, they would normally take uh, their spears or, or sticks and they would break the legs of these uh, crucifixion victims because what would happen is that uh, with the way that these guys were crucified, they would sort of hang on their hands uh, and their feet were nailed typically across each other and uh, the hanging part would squeeze the air out of them in order to be able to get a breath of air. They would push themselves up, um, basically through that nail that was through their feet. Um, and the agony of all of that, just to be able to get a breath, and then they would lower themselves down again, and that would squeeze the air, and that's how they would breathe, and that's how they would agonize for hours on end. And to speed up the process, the Bible says that soldiers broke the legs of the other two guys that were crucified with Jesus because they were still alive and they came to Jesus and they couldn't somehow believe that he was already dead. Some of these little incidentals, if I can call them that, might say, oh yeah. But you know, in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that they would not break his legs because God already knew in the Old Testament exactly what was going to happen and what was going to take place. And uh, even that very little detail was covered in a prophecy so that today, we can go back to the Old Testament, which was written hundreds of years before this event took place, and say, wow, it's listed right there. And then Jesus died on the cross, and his legs were broken, which was somewhat unusual. Uh, but it lets us know that the Bible is true. And in fact, there's like multiplied dozens and dozens and dozens of prophecies. If we only care to study the Word, we will find that the Bible is in fact God's Word, and not just a history book that's uh, flawed with uh, mistakes, that it is true from cover to cover. And so they took the body of Jesus down and uh, wrapped sheets around him and took him down to Joseph's own tomb. Uh, Joseph was a well-to-do man. Only wealthy people had tombs back then. Most other people were buried in the ground. Um, but this man had a tomb. And uh, in fact, uh, the Bible was even prophesying that Jesus would lie in a tomb where no man had been before. So this tomb was brand new. Joseph and... Uh, Nicodemus worked together. They carried the body of Jesus down to that tomb um, and um, wrapped his body in linen cloths or grave cloths, what they called in those days. And um, just so that they would get the body down before the Sabbath day was going to start. Um, and then they went home. And the rest we've just read here. When the women arrived the next, uh, you know, on Sunday in the morning, this is now after the Sabbath day and everything, and uh, they find the tomb empty, um, and um, only the grave cloths were there. Jesus had risen from the dead. And uh, the ladies went back to the disciples 
and say the body of Jesus is gone. And they, if you like, proclaimed that the women were the first ones to proclaim the good news of Jesus' resurrection. They didn't fully know what had happened until the angels told them. And they went to the guys and said, the body of Jesus is gone. He's not there. And Peter and John, which had saw him before, started racing down to the tomb and found it completely empty. Jesus had risen from the dead. And over a period of some 40 days, he appeared to his disciples um, on several occasions to the 12, or by now the 11, because Judas had committed suicide. There's only 11 of them now. And on several occasions, uh, only some of them were there. In fact, one time Jesus appeared to some of his disciples and then left again, and then later on when Thomas came in, they said, Thomas, guess what? We've seen the Lord. We call him Doubting Thomas. Because he said, ah, I don't believe you guys. He says, unless I'm able to put my fingers into the print of his hands where he was nailed to the, to the cross, or put my hand into his side, because Jesus in the end, just to make sure that he was definitely dead rather than breaking his legs, they shoved the spear into his side. The Bible says that uh, blood and water flowed out. And Thomas says, uh-uh, I want, I want physical evidence that uh, Jesus is alive, otherwise I will not believe. And you know, if we demand physical evidence, it means that heaven is barred for us because we can only access heaven by faith. And ultimately, we have to decide to believe that having studied the Word and that the Bible is in fact God's Word and everything that it tells us there and the message that has been preached for the last 2,000 years that Jesus rose from the dead, we have to believe it and receive Jesus as personal Lord and Savior of our lives. And Thomas says, I will not believe. But you know, Jesus does not <laughs> want to be exclusive. So he came this time when Thomas was there. And he appeared to his disciples and he said, Peace be with you, which was, I guess, a reasonably common um, Jewish greeting at the time. It's shalom, shalom. And then uh, after some discussion, Jesus went over to Thomas. He says, Thomas, put your finger in here and, and put your hand in here. And, and he says, do not be unbelieving, but believe. And what that means is that Jesus is even able to accommodate people who don't believe, who want some proof that Jesus is alive. And one of the most common prayers that people do pray and can pray and should pray is to say this, Lord, I, I'm not sure if you exist, but if you're real, come and show yourself to me. And God will absolutely do so in unmistakable ways, in his own way, to very personally let you know that only you will know that say, wow, only God could do that. And sometimes there are circumstances and there is coincidences. But God will do something that you know is beyond circumstance to let you know that Jesus is alive and he wants to come into your heart and save your life and make you born again. The Bible tells us, before I move on into the next scripture there and then we'll close after that, uh, after we've shared communion together. The um, Bible tells us that one time there were over 500 disciples together. 500 Christians had come together and Jesus appeared to them and he talked to them. And so they were not just little isolated incidents, um, but they were unmistakable proofs that Jesus was actually 
out of the tomb. He was off the, off the cross, out of the tomb. He's alive. He's moving around. Um, and then finally, in the game, Matthew tells us about it. Um, Gospels tell us that Jesus was, his, was with his disciples and he told them that he was going to come back again to this earth and he gave them some instructions in regards to proclaiming the good news to everybody, everybody that's alive in any generation. So the people have the choice of either receiving or rejecting Jesus. And have you know that there is no middle ground? Receive or reject. These are the only two options. Because people want, God wants us to have a choice. We're not spiritual robots. We are our own free moral agents. We can choose to come to Jesus and receive him as Lord of our lives or we can reject him. And the consequences will absolutely be, comes back to our decision. So then Jesus... The Bible says he was taken up out of their sight and he rolls up right before their very eyes. must have been quite a sight. Here's Jesus standing on the ground like all the other guys and suddenly his feet lift off the ground and he's sort of taken up into heaven. Uh, and the Bible says, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So he disappears into the clouds. <laughs> Phenomenal. And two angels, or angels appear to his disciples and says, why do you guys stand here staring into the cloud? It's like this same Jesus who was taken away from you just now will so come or in the, in the same manner come back again. And so we call that the second coming of Jesus. First time he came as Savior, the second time he will come as judge. How will he come? He will come through the clouds. Of course, that's a whole other subject, but uh, we know that Jesus will come again. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head of all things for the benefit of of the church. And so the Bible tells us in other parts that uh, Jesus has been given a name that is above every name. That his act of obedience by dying on the cross, he's now become number one in the whole wide world, in the whole universe, not only in the world that existed at the time, but in the world to come, uh, both in the natural world, dealing with human beings as well as in the spiritual world, dealing with angels and with demon spirits. Jesus is above them all. And he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. And uh, one amazing passage tells us that he ever lives to make intercession for us. Intercession means that he's praying for us right now. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as the Lord of your life, he's praying for you that the eyes, that your eyes will be opened and that you will allow, as it were, uh, a crack in your heart so that the, the, the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ can shine into your heart and you can accept Jesus and you too can be saved. And in Romans 8 verse 5, I start again, Romans 5 verse 8, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies. Now this is amazing. 
We're either friends of God or we're enemies of God, and there is no middle ground. We're either for Him or we're against Him. Of course, prior to people hearing that message, they just don't know. They're just ignorant. But once we hear about Jesus, we, we are faced with a decision of receiving Him or rejecting Him. And He says, uh, we will certainly be saved through the life of His Son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because of our Lord Jesus Christ who has made us friends made us friends of God. And the question is, is then asked, how can we be saved? How can we begin our relationship with God? Well, specifically Romans chapter 10, and I close with this uh, scripture here, it says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the believing of in your heart, you will be made right with God, and by the confession of your mouth, you will be saved. And the question is, do you believe? And many people say, yes, I believe. And then the next question needs to be asked, have you confessed? Have you conf declared Jesus with the words of your own mouth? And sometimes people say, no. Well, salvation is not complete until we have confessed him with our mouth. And after we have confessed him, it's time to come out. That we're not a secret agent, as Nicodemus was, until the day of Jesus' death came and he says, I don't care what my friends think. I'm just going to get the body of Jesus and they can now know that I'm one of his disciples. I just don't care anymore. Because you see, if they had known earlier on, they would have excommunicated him. Excommunicated is a term that basically relates to uh, some religious society shutting somebody out and saying, we want nothing to do with you anymore. But you know what? Sometimes friends excommunicate one of their friends by, by becoming a disciple of Jesus. That's why I said if we want to retain our status in society, we can't have it every way. People say, I'm not religious. Atheism is a religion. Agnosticism is a religion. So let's just... Um, our heads for a moment. I just wonder if there's anybody here this morning. And just before we move on to share communion together, which obviously again all demonstrates what Jesus has done for, on the, for us on the cross. If you're here this morning, and uh, perhaps this, this is the first time that you've heard this message of salvation, the message of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. You might have known Jesus is a swear word, but now you realize that he's actually the man that died on the cross for your sins and for my sins. And you believe in your heart. And you'll be ready to say, say, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. It's like you're saying, I'm now moving on to the next step. I want to make a confession of my faith. I want my salvation to be complete. I don't want to go to hell. I want heaven um, to be my final destination. And if that relates to you and you haven't done so before, I invite you to just briefly raise up your hand and put it back down again. And in just a moment, I'm going to pray for people that have raised their hand. And I just want to know whom to include in this prayer. This is like a, a crucial moment in, uh, in the time of our get-together here this morning. It's like now decision time. It's like I said earlier on, we must decide. And being inactive and passive we're basically, in a way, rejecting Jesus. Uh, and so the only way to be receiving him is by, by actively saying, yes, Lord, I want you to come into my heart. I want to be born again. I want to serve you. I want you to be my 
Lord and my Savior. And who would say, I need to do that? If you haven't done so before, just briefly raise up your hand and put it back down. And let me promise you, I'm not going to embarrass you in any way. This is really purely between you and God. But I would like to include you in a prayer that I'm about to pray. And uh, we just don't want to you know, miss this opportunity for people's eternal destination to be confirmed that actually heaven is where they will end up. Is there anybody here this morning that you just... You just, you just know you need to do that. I see that hand. Thank you. Put it back down again. I see that hand. Thank you, sir. Uh, put it back down again. It's a courageous step and a, a brave move. I wonder if there's others. And by the way, most of us have accepted Jesus in this way, that we might have been in a meeting or perhaps uh, somewhere friends talked to us and we responded to the invitation. That's what it is. It is an invitation. And we can receive or we can reject. The decision is ours. Anybody that would say, yep, that's me? Perhaps perhaps you're a secret agent undercover. Maybe it's time to come out. Maybe it's time to say, well, I'm going to be a believer publicly. I, 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 I don't care what my friends are going to think or my family. In fact, if they're, if they're good friends, they will be glad for you. And if they turn against you by becoming a Christian, then they're not good friends to have. So who would say that? That describes me, and you want to raise up your hand as well. I'm about to pray this prayer, and just want to make sure that everybody's had the opportunity. Praise God. I see that hand. Thank you, young lady. Praise God. Thank you, young man. Just eternal decisions are being made here. That's what's happening. I want us, and sometimes we do this, I want us all to pray a prayer out aloud. For some of us that have prayed this prayer once before to receive Jesus, if we pray it again, no harm done. It just confirms what we've already done. But if you're praying this prayer for the first time and you're praying it out aloud and you believe what you're saying, you'll be born again and Jesus will be the Lord of your life by the time you get to the end. And once you've done that, I encourage you, tell somebody, don't be an undercover agent. Come out and let people know that you're now a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray and I want everybody to pray after me out aloud. And I want it to be real loud. So Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I surrender my life to you. I believe that you sent Jesus to die for me. He died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that He rose again on the third day. And right now, Lord Jesus, I'm asking you, to come into my heart, make me born again, forgive all of my sins, and help me to live for you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.